This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. So I told someone last week that I was going to talk about Zazen tonight. And they said, no, really? <laughs> I, I guess I talk about Zazen quite a lot. <laughs> You might not know that the first line in my job description says, encourage zazen. It's a priest's job. Even more than teaching and dharma talks and liturgy, even more than cleaning the toilet or asking for donations. Zazen, when we, uh, when we establish ourselves in Zazen, this is the entry to the way. And so that is why we emphasize so much this practice of sitting meditation. Dogen referred to it as the Dharma gate of reposed and bliss. A Dharma gate, it's a way to enter into truth, into reality as it is. And we know that from the stability of Zazen, all of the, our other practices can flow. The precepts, our ethical principles, the Noble Eightfold Path, all become possible when we come from that um, settled place that Zazen uh, takes us to. It's only from Zazen's steadiness that we can take a step in the direction of peace. Without that steadiness, we're simply driven by our karma. So it's our core practice. And the question that I wanna to raise tonight about Zazen is what has enabled us to sustain our Zazen practice? A lot of us sit every day, and uh, I'm hoping that we'll be able to have a discussion about uh, what is it that uh, helps us, um, you know, stay committed, stay regular to our meditation practice. I found myself thinking as I was writing this, why actually did I take to Zazen the first time I, I tried it? I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I didn't know what happened next. Um, you know, I had read books about how to sit in meditation and uh, uh, I was so unlimber that there was no way that I could sit in any floor position. I had to develop a position where I was sitting on an ottoman and I put a pile of blankets in front of me so that um, even though my, my legs couldn't be, you know, uh, even with, with my body like this, still uh, I could raise them a bit up. It was 
not exactly what you would call a, uh, a classical meditation posture. But it was the best I could do. So I did it, and I did it uh, really very little about the procedures for Zazen. And that was great because I really had this open mind. What, what will I find? What will I discover? I think of that as um, really core to our Zazen practice. That kind of openness to what comes next? What is it that's happening right now? I wonder when you think about it, when you think about your first experiences with Zazen, do you recognize something like that? Some kind of feeling of, well, let me see what this is like. If you had that feeling, you're in good company. It was the feeling that uh, guided Buddha to his enlightenment 2,500 years ago. Um, and he, he engaged in a lot of different practices. He did the meditation that one teacher taught. And uh, he said to himself, suppose I do this and see what happens. And he found that it didn't really lead to the end of suffering. So he did meditation with another teacher and the same thing happened. And he experimented with practice after practice. And he, he started each experiment with, well, suppose I do this. Suppose I eat very little. Let's see what happens if I do that. Suppose I don't eat it at all, he said to himself. That didn't work out too well. Suppose I don't breathe. That didn't work out too well either. And finally he said, suppose I sit as I did when I was a child, simply under a tree. Suppose I sit in peace and harmony with all of nature. What would happen then? And so he engaged in that practice and he knew right away, this is the practice that would lead to awakening. But he engaged, with the practice, with the, uh, you know, with the feeling of, let's see what happens now. The legend says that um, he sat under that tree extremely peacefully when he was a child. It just kind of spontaneously fell into a pretty deep meditation. And while he was sitting there, of course, the sun moved in the sky. And so the shadows changed their direction, you know. So he started in the shadow of the tree. And, but the sun was moving in the sky, but the, the tree ensured that its shadow stayed um, on the Buddha so that he would be comfortable in his meditation. When I first started Zazen, I was interested in exploring this tradition that some people have been willing to preserve for 2,500 years. 
I asked myself, why would this gift had come all this way? Millions of people really, literally brought it to me. And my attitude was, what would I find if I unwrapped it? My main concern when I started uh, meditating came from a lack of trust. Not in Zazen, but a lack of trust in myself. I, I was concerned, would I be able to sustain my effort and my interest? I had seen myself engage, uh, you know, pretty thoroughly in a number of things. I'm thinking of all musical instruments that I tried to play. And uh, almost all of them, you know, I, I kind of played for a while and then I dropped when I found out that um, I couldn't improve as much as I wanted to improve as I was playing that instrument. So I was concerned, would I be able to sustain my engagement in this meditation practice? Once I was having a conversation with one of my early teachers, and she referred to me as a stream enterer, one who's entered the stream of the Dharma. And I told her right away that my, my real fear was that could I stay in the stream? Would I have, you know, the fortitude to stay in the stream? And she told me, it's not possible to leave. She said, no one who has entered ever drops out. So once you're in, you're in. I'll tell you one thing that kept me going with Zazen. Unlike my experience with musical instruments, I never had the feeling that I couldn't improve enough. In fact, I don't think I ever had the feeling that improvement was even important in Zazen. It's not a matter, it never was a matter for me of how well could I do this. The issue was always just to investigate this, to open this gift and to see what it held. I knew it had to be possible to attain the way. And I eventually came to realize that doing so did not depend on my individual competence or specialness. When Buddha awakened, he said he did it with all beings simultaneously. And when I finally understood what that meant, I felt humbled and so relieved. What I'd wanted was already accomplished. It had been here all along. I had already participated in awakening. And so intelligence or lack of it did not matter.
Dogen asked, is it not a principle that's prior to knowledge and ideas? Prior to knowing is not knowing. Our practice is relinquish our knowing. And there is always more knowledge, more opinion to let go. Layer after layer, we find more that we can relinquish. But sooner or later, relinquishing our uh, knowledge, our expert mind, the world seems to be fresher. Last week, um, Douglas and Mary and I went to a concert at the Chicago Symphony. And at that concert, I heard a piece that I'd heard maybe a hundred times before. It's called The Rite of Spring. Maybe some, some of you have heard it. This piece begins with a bassoon solo. Except I'd always thought that this solo was played by maybe an oboe or an English horn, a higher pitched instrument. It's played in the very high register of the bassoon so that you could mistake it for um, you know, a higher pitched double reed. In fact, I was looking at a YouTube that was made by the principal bassoonist of the New York Philharmonic. And she said that Stravinsky wanted the audience not to know what instrument was playing at the beginning. I thought, that's wonderful. Stravinsky wanted to evoke not knowing. He wanted to evoke really the central practice of Zazen. Our interest in saying, what is it? When the piece began, you know, like I said, I thought that that initial phrase phrases uh, were being played by an oboe or English horn. So I, I was scanning the oboe and English horn players and nobody was playing. And finally I realized, oh, it's this person who's playing, it's the bassoonist. And not only was it new to me that this part was played by a bassoon, but this bassoonist shaped the first note, the initial phrase, in a way that I'd never heard before with crescendo and decrescendo. I'd heard the piece a hundred times. And the first note and the first musician to play announced to me that I'd never heard this before. And I realized that at every moment, we could all say that. The first note always announces that we've never heard this before. When someone strikes the bell uh, in service, you know, we, we know what that sounds like. We might not even listen to how it sounds like, but really 
Every time is different. Every time, Bell says, you've never heard this before. It's just that we have our preoccupations, our karmic habits that are so strong that the uniqueness of every moment escapes us. So this um, experience of not knowing runs through all of our zazen. It's like the bloodline of zazen. And I can't talk about it without also acknowledging that mostly not knowing is the opposite of what we want. For me, at least, not knowing is associated with anxiety and fear, you know, concern about doing the wrong thing. Not knowing feels dangerous. But not in our Zen practice. You know, in our practice, we know what happens next. We know the forms. We know how to sit. We know how to do walking meditation. But what we don't know is really what happens now. When we drop our three Ps, predictions, prejudices, and preoccupations. When we drop that, then we actually get to meet our lives. So it's this quality of freshness that has helped me sit Zazen for some decades now. And I say all this to begin a discussion. What makes it possible for you to sustain your Zazen practice? What keeps your Zazen going? What keeps you engaged in Zazen? want to put those questions out and hope that in exploring it, we could encourage each other in our Zazen. So please, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts and comments.